Welcome to NAFA Inner Circle, a show where we talk to industry insiders like actors, directors, cinematographers, writers, producers, presented by New England International Film Awards. It's a pleasure to have here John Suma, the director of the documentary The Resurrection of Victor Harra. Thank you very much, John, to be with us. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Tell us a little bit about you, John. I wrote the film and I produced the film. I come from a non-professional film background. I'm actually a PhD in economics, and I've been off and on an educator at the university level, kind of as my day job. Making film has been kind of a hobby, passion outside the classroom. Uh, another way to tell stories, to bring narratives to a, a larger audience. It's been about 30 years that I've been dabbling in filmmaking. Started out as a local access filmmaker in the 1980s, which led me to make my first feature film called The Contra War. A uh, film was released in 1986, late 86, early 87, during the height of the Contra War. That was the U.S.-backed, the Reagan administration-backed war against the Sandinista government of Nicaragua. There was a lot of opposition to that war around the world. The film captured that as well as as the true nature of the, the Contra War. From there, I didn't really do much with filmmaking. I have a film that's unfinished from that same period about the uh, anti-apartheid movement at that time was at its peak in the United States, particularly where I was at Yale University. I wasn't studying at Yale. I was living in that area. And there was a massive Occupy movement of the time, pre the Occupy movement uh, that we know from more recent times, Occupy Wall Street. There was an Occupy the University setting against vestments in South Africa by universities like Yale University. You end to film all that. I, I covered it all and I have it all and I'm cutting that in film finally. That should come out soon. It's called Occupied Yale, No Business in South Africa. It's really a, a forgotten period of activism. The 80s are some sort of thought of as this sort of me decade, the decade of greed, the Reagan era. There was an enormous social political reaction to the greed and the me movement, the me generation of the, the Reagan era. And I uh, captured that. I think people need to remember that you see some activism now around the Palestinian solidarity, what I would argue is a genocide, as many are arguing, in Gaza. It's starting to swell up like it was in the, in the 1980s uh, around South Africa at the time. But now we know that it's a It's a sort of apartheid Israel. So there's an anti-apartheid, anti-apartheid in Israel kind of movement now. So uh, whether I make a film about that or not, I don't know. It's a good question. That's sort of the unifying thing in all of my work is that I think at heart, I'm really a journalist. So in the classroom, I bring in a sort of journalistic perspective, narratives. In filmmaking, you know, we use narratives. And when we do journalism, we capture competing narratives. We are going to talk a little bit about the resurrection of Victor Harra. This is the documentary that win the best documentary of New England International Film Award. But before we do that, we want to look a little piece of the film. He was a Chilean leader, a musician, a director. Great songs, beautiful melodies. He's an originator. Victor Harra was the Bob Dylan of South America. Victor saw the power of music as this vehicle to communicate. 
His music is a loving battle cry. He was a fighter. He followed through on the issues he sang about. He was very adventurous in the transformations that he made. The resurrection of Victor Jara, John. I don't even know how you make this film. To me, it's very complex. You were not the director, you were the writer and the producer. How was the collaboration with the director? Because to me, it's a very complex film. I wonder myself how we even made this film. I think I shared with you at one point that Oliver Stone, who I had the chance to interact with about the making of this film before we made it, told me bluntly, he is kind of a blunt guy sometimes, but he said, you can't make this film. This is a Chilean who has to make this film, a Chilean filmmaker. This is, a gringos can't make this film. This is not a, you know, it's about a Chilean. I was uh, not surprised by that because I kind of harbored the same concerns myself. He's such a sacred subject, Victor Hara. How can a, a North American come down there and, and do a definitive story uh, about the character? It got off the ground slowly. We did many things wrong. We were told we were doing the approach wrong from both a legal point of view and financial point of view. We had met filmmakers who had attempted to do films, Chilean filmmakers who had attempted to do the same thing and were had their door shut on, okay, after they had put money in and got halfway down the road and then not finishing. It's amazing that we finished the film. John Travers, well, John and I have a long history. We're friends. He passed away toward the middle end of the film. 2017, he passed away suddenly. He had, had a, a cardiac arrest in his sleep. He had cardiovascular issues. It was a known problem, but sudden cardiac death can happen to anybody. We were in post-production. I had to take the film back east. So I was on the east coast here in Vermont. He's out in Hollywood with his studio doing the work there, post-production work. And I, I had to kind of fly out there and get the film drives and all the media. I had some media here, but most of it was there with John and, and I had to bring it all east. And I'm not a professional editor. John is or was. I've done editing, but I didn't have my own voice really. You know, as a producer, you don't necessarily develop your own voice as a filmmaker. The director has to develop their unique voice. So I had to come up with something, you know, and I pulled the media into, at the time I was teaching at the University of Vermont and, and they had a studio up there and I just big Mac computers and Final Cut Pro, the 10 version. Uh, and I just got booted up up and went to town. And John was already sort of into that process. So a lot of it became a survival move. You know, how do I keep this film alive at this stage? So I began, I actually had begun to discuss with John editing it on the East Coast because he was working on some other films. I didn't feel it was moving along quick enough there. We were running out of money. We were talking about, well, you know, maybe I should move forward with at least an initial stab at it. I, I, I kind of created a three-act structure. As the writer, I was trying to structure it on paper. I did a lot of the transcriptions and the of the interviews. I built a system to extract and search the transcriptions to find the material that kind of fit the, the structure I was making, the three-act structure, and the scenes in each act. So I did structure the film as a three-act structure. And, you know, there is that in a lot of films. You may have begun to sense that in, in the way the film 
flows. And so what happened was I, I began that writing process and a little bit of editing some trailers, maybe trying to get it rolling. John was busy with other stuff. And then of course he passed away. So then I had to kind of take it all. I just started editing, taking that structure and pulling media in and friends out there who got media and sent it to me. We recently got new media we didn't have before that's in this third edition of the film that went out to you and to others around the 50th anniversary of the death of Victor. It's gotten improved as we reissued it. But the work became sort of like a, a struggle to get the film done by any means necessary. It was not a competitive struggle between John and I. It was really like, what do we need to do to get the film to the finish line? Now, there were differences. You know, John was like, we've got to make the best film we can ever make. And at a certain point, I, I would say, yes, of course. And then I would qualify that and say, well, it needs to be good enough. You know, so there's a difference there. I get it done. It means maybe just good enough, but not maybe the best film. We love to have made a, a Searching for Sugar Man documentary, you know, that won the Academy Award uh, for Best Docs. Obviously, that's not going to happen with a subject about a Chilean. It doesn't have to be an American story. John and I have collaborated over the years. We started working on this film as another focus just past the change in the millennium. So in 2000, 2001, and it was called The Power of Their Song. And it was going to be a story about the Latin American new song movement as a whole. It, you know, it's a it's a it's a multi-nation, multicultural kind of phenomenon. There are even versions of it in North America we could talk about. Uh, but that became unwieldy. You know, we really couldn't get it done because you need a ton of money and traveling to all these countries. I mean, I I was working full time as a teacher. We decided let's try to focus it on one of the artists. And that artist became Victor Hada. And then the new song, as you know from watching the film, the new song story is 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 there. It's in, sort of in the background, and it comes forward at, at a certain point in the second act, and it's it's sort of featured, but then it recedes and it becomes more focused on refocused on so victor remains the, the hero and he has an ally of course joan his recently passed away uh wife who just died a few weeks ago 96 mm -hmm. old we interviewed her at 86 years old she's phenomenal in the interview and so she's sort of like the ally in the story uh, so john and i you know work from that God, it's almost uh 20 20 years since we really it's a little bit maybe more than 20 years since we started talking about doing something like this how do you know all these people like both for example and there's a bunch of musicians that they're talking about how do you guys get in contact with all these people how do you guys know that these people know this his music this knowledge we acquired along the road you know so we might do an interview and learn something from that interview that helped us and in, helped inform us about where we should go next interviewed Pete Seeger you know the late Pete Seeger the legendary Pete Seeger we interviewed him in 2006 I think it was one of the first interviews of anybody notable musical celebrity he he doesn't appear a lot in the film but we know we know there's sort of a folk royalty you know folk tradition and all this stuff is connected so as soon as you start researching pete seeger you realize oh okay so i see victor covered one of his songs that he covered of another artist so they're all linked through covering you know each other's music and then from there we were able to explore uh connections to say peter yarrow in, in in the famous trio peter paul and mary a group that covered pete seeger's el martillo the the hammer song which victor covered as well so you know this is how you begin to connect these individuals who we want to talk to about victor because they're involved in the music 
musical circle. And that's led us to Bono, for example. Bono uh, on One Tree Hill, his his great album, the YouTube album, One Tree Hill, the song One Tree Hill on, on um, Joshua Tree, I believe it is, a song about, according to Bono, Victor Hada and a good friend of Bono's. And Bono's good friend had died on a motorcycle accident. I believe it was in Australia where he'd lent, Bono had lent him the uh, motorcycle and he crashed it and died, the friend. And so the song sort of weaves together Hara's story with the tragedy of his friend. So that pulls Bono into the circle. Bono's politics um, engaging the Latin American social movement known as liberation theology, because Bono is a Christian, uh, sort mm-hmm. of liberation theologian kind of inspired. And, you know, that's a very powerful movement in Latin America that I was immersed in in the 80s, um, politically got involved, not directly involved, but in kind of uh, reporting on it. You know, so there, there's these kinds of tie-ins to the narrative life uh, story. Arlo Guthrie, of course, his dad, Woody, is kind of like the Victor Hara of North America. They're, he's a composite, you know, roll up of, say, Dylan, sort of Woody Guthrie and uh, Bob Dylan, you know, there has elements of all of those people. And, and he's just a version of them or they're a version of him, whatever way you want to go here. No cultural imperialism. This this is who these people are. They're all part of the same, cut out of the same fabric, same movement. Yeah, they're all part of this sort of new song movement uh, of that era. And so that's how we began to branch out and say, we got to get these people in the film. Some helped us out financially. That's been a very important outgrowth of uh, interacting, engaging with them. What really helped is having uh, encountered some Chileans on the West Coast in San Francisco. They're affiliated or will, were affiliated, still are uh, affiliated with the La Peña Cultural Center. Peña Torres and his brother Osvaldo became huge supporters of the film and opened all the doors in Chile. So we didn't have to worry about somebody saying, oh, we're not going to do an interview. Who are you? You know. Well, if Peña called up Eduardo Carrasco, from Inti Yamani, Kira Payun, said, hey, we'd like to come over and do an interview. No problem. And the doors would be wide open right away. I mean, it just was familiarity. They knew who Fenya was. Fenya was a familiar guy. His brother's even more famous. It, it, it allowed the doors to open. In fact, Joan, when I spoke with her initially, said that she, oh, not another film about Victor. That was her first response. <laughs> I was I was uh, sort of... Uh, I know, disappointed or shocked. Yeah, it was, it was not a good opening to uh, a relationship, you know, that we would later develop. And I explained to her that the film we were making was not about his death. The film was about his life today, alive today. It's the resurrection. We didn't have the title at the time, but it was about his afterlife, his transmission of his his music, his his message, his spirit in the new generations today. Still, she wasn't convinced. So then Osvaldo, Fenya's brother, contacted Joan, and of course she loved Osvaldo, and that was it. Come on down. Okay, now I understand, she said. Let's do it. And we did the interview, and it was fantastic. It's a funny story there. I was outside the foundation, the Victor Hara Foundation in Santiago. I was waiting for her to arrive, and I had my Nikromat old Nikon camera out there. I was shooting some photos. And I see an old Subaru Outback pull up. Listen, it was a red one. And I said, wow, that's the same car I have. Same mirror, same color. I see this strange parking with a car pulled right up onto the sidewalk. This is a metropolitan area under the sidewalk and starts doing this back and forth, back and forth until the 
car could get right against the wall of the building on the sidewalk. You know, there's no parking on the street. The parking spots were all taken. And it was a perfect parking job. And so I took a picture of the Subaru thinking, oh, I got to show this back home. Here's a car that looks like mine in Santiago, right? I was going to make a joke about it. I, I got my car down here in Santiago. And guess who pops out? Joan Hara, 86 years old. That was my wow. first meeting with her. Wow. And I, she was 86 years old. And I said, now that's a parking job. I've never seen anything like it. Wow. She did a perfect parking job on the sidewalk against the building. And she said, yeah, I get VIP parking, something like that. She went in and we, we, we eventually set up a couple of days later to come and do the interview at the foundation, which was wonderful. Uh, you know, we had a great time with that. Fenya was there. So Fenya was with us on a lot of the interviews in Chile. And he is a journalist and a great writer himself. Uh, so he was able to take the lead. My Spanish is in fluent native. I was about to ask you if you speak Spanish. My Spanish, I do speak, but I'm not a native speaker. And I have to write down kind of what I want to ask first and just sort of rehearse it a little bit in Spanish. And I may not pick up on all the nuances. When, they're fast talkers. You know, there's a lot of slang in any culture, but like I learned my Spanish in mostly in uh, Nick in Mexico so and in Colombia. So th th that's really clear spoken English, uh, Spanish. And so for me to sort of understand, I, I, I don't have a great ear either. So it was tough. So Fenya was there and Fenya was just perfect. You know, like we would talk about what we wanted to ask. We'd go in, I'd ask a few questions, but then Fenya could take control of it. So without Fenya helping me there, I don't think we would have got the interviews as, A, we wouldn't have gotten any of the interviews. B, we wouldn't have done the interviews as well. And so that that was key. And Osvaldo, his brother, wrote the original music score mm. um, with, with a collaborator. And that was amazing. And we we weaved that in. You know, I cut that in uh, underneath the images uh, to try to make that work. And, and uh, I think I think I got it right. I mean, most of it. It, it still could use a little bit of work. It's always a tough. The music beds are, are uh, always tough. Are they too loud? Are they too low? Are they, is it the right mood? Hard to it get is. that right. What would, what would you say was the biggest challenge doing this? Yeah, the, the hardest thing, I guess, for me would have been because John, if he were here, would probably have his own story of challenging uh, moments in, in the making of the film. I think money is, is probably the, the biggest challenge for us, getting money and, 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 and not running out of money when we're trying to make, you know, some shoot and, and get shoots done. Uh, you know, like in Chile, we went and we rented an apartment for a month, set up a studio there so we could bring people to the studio rather than have to go to their homes. Some of them, it was a lot easier to do that. So others, we would go to their homes um, to interview them or to the foundation, the Kahara Foundation, where we went uh, to interview Joan and the director of the foundation. But having a studio and, and uh, you know, John had his all his setup there with lighting so people could come in. We would just sit them down. We were ready to go. So we would pull, we would bump into people and Fenya would say, hey, do you want to interview this guy? Yeah. So bring him right over, hand him a glass of wine and sit him down. And we were rolling with with uh with a great interview you know so that was really helpful money would run out you know like uh oh we're out of money and we got to go begging for money again you know i kicked in a lot of my money but you can't i'm not rich yeah. so bono helped out uh peter yero and arlo did a benefit concert at, toward the end post-production cost coverage that that was really key there was everybody was kicking in what they could you know when when we asked most people were generous and they they helped us out and uh it's it's a low production a low budget production i mean it's 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 got to be one of the cheapest films ever made, you know, for a feature-length uh, documentary that has that kind of dimension.
attention to it, you know, global, you know, traveling all around and artists, you know, everywhere and trying to get there. I mean, bringing a lighting crew, a sound tech person and the director and then me minimum, you know, to a shoot requires you know, four plane tickets. You know, can you imagine? You know? Yeah, no, I no, I, I, I know. I see. I remember. Let me tell you about his story here. I met you in, I think, in 2018 on Sun. What? Oh my goodness! Sunscreen Film, Film, Film Festival in Tampa, Florida. Saint yeah. Pete. Yeah, Saint Petersburg. Saint Petersburg. Petersburg in yes. Tampa, right? That's that was that was a lot of fun there. Yes, and I, you win the best documentary in there as well. I remember that yeah and I, yeah we did uh, to my surprise and you know we, yeah that was a great uh experience and, you know, that's where that. we met that's where we first met yes and i remember also i always after that i want to see your documentary very hard but i remember i don't know if you remember but it was an official selection in havana a thing festival as well and i have to go and travel and you sent me to you asked me to bring a dvd i don't know you remember that you don't remember oh, that i don't remember that but yes you, you sent me a dvd so i had to bring the dvd to the um oh, to Cuba. oh. yes because by oh. that time i don't know I, I, right now how they do it but oh. by that time you yeah. had to send dvds on it yeah i remember that and i was very curious because i know it was selected there as well so well, thank you, you thank you for bringing that that's that was a great <laughs> trip and you know it was an honor to be invited and accepted to the 38th I think it was the 38th annual I think so it's, yeah. it's one of the top festivals in the world uh, and it's not easy to get in there at all especially for a North American because it's a film about Latin American film not a North American films uh, it, the full title is um, is is I believe the uh, Latin American uh, it, it's called like a Latin American film festival I forget the full title but um, it It, Festival Internacional del Nuevo Cine. Yeah, new Latin American cinema, right? And yeah. so while there were only three or four films from like Oliver Stone's film was picked for that year, it was uh, Snowden, the film Snowden, right? And mm -hmm. then he, uh, and then there was a film about the Black Panthers that was uh, a film doc that was made by uh, Stanley Nelson uh, out of New York, who I wrote, I flew home with uh, on JetBlue. Uh, the flights, by the way, to Havana were $99 each way mm -hmm. from New York City that, mm -hmm. at that time. Uh, that's how cheap, it just opened up under the Obama plan to, uh -huh. to normalize relations. And so we were, there was nobody on the plane on the way down. We were about, there were maybe five people and into Havana. And so I have a lot of really cool stories about what happened down there, but I'll just share one if, if you want to. Uh, we were at the Please. Charlie Yeah, Charlie Chaplin Theater, the famous Charlie Chaplin Theater in Havana, mm -hmm. which I know you've probably been to. Of course. Yeah. I know it's my favorite movie theater in, in Havana. Yeah, so upstairs and where they have the, the projectors, they have all the old, really, really old projectors. I wish John Travers had been with us because he's a he was a film buff. He knew all the technology, all the film stories, all the history. He would have gone crazy when he saw that 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 camera, the, the projector equipment. These were ancient projectors up there, and um, yet they weren't using them. They had a laptop and they were <laughs> projecting through. Uh, 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 some sort of uh, more 
more modern, uh, you know. Yeah, digital. Digital, digital. LCD, whatever. I don't know. Nice. It was a good setup. But uh, here's what happened. We were all, there were lines around the block to come in. It was, you know, hundreds of people coming to see the film. And we're up there getting it all set up. And we got to speak on the stage as well and introduce the film to everybody. But before I got up to the stage, we were upstairs in the projecting room and we couldn't get the, the film to project. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Yeah. And so what happened was, so I had a thumb drive, but it was not the right format for what they had. Uh, I think it wasn't, it was FAT32. You know, it goes both ways. You know, these, you can format drives. So they work on PCs and Macs. They had a Mac. I working on a PC. I, I don't know. We couldn't get it. I had a Blu-ray disc and there was a, I think there was a, an MO. I don't know if they, they didn't have an MO. I don't know what happened, but we couldn't get anything to work. We were going crazy. My blood pressure must have been off the charts because I thought, oh my God, we're all the way here. They have all these people in the audience and we can't get the film to work. So I don't know how they did it, but they got the Blu-ray disc to work. They finally got it to work. Wow. That and, would be very stressful. Oh my God. I was just, going, yeah. I was, I was so panicked about it that I actually went out to the line of people waiting to come in. And I was asking people, because I think it was either they needed a PC or they needed a Mac. They needed something we didn't have. I don't know what it was. I think I might've had the PC and they didn't, they had the Mac. In any case, whatever they needed, I asked, started asking people in the line, do you have, a, would you be willing to lend us your, you know, Mac or PC so that we can project the film? We're having technical problems. And, no, don't have one. Sorry, can't help you. You know, so we we couldn't get anywhere there, but they did fix it, and we ended up having it be a success, and we were we were thrilled. Spent about I think a week and a half in in Havana. Uh, didn't go outside Havana, old Havana, and uh, just it was my first trip to Cuba, so I was really happy. Well, that's awesome. You, I mean, I'm very familiar with the movie theater because many years ago I used to be a projectionist, so I worked oh. putting films. So I'm very familiar with all the absolutely beautiful and stunning old machines that they have. And I work with the old ones, with the films. Uh, it was just amazing, the experience. So it's, I mean, you should have a tour of the old movie theaters that they still have, that a few of them only right yeah. now. Yeah. So you were, you were there, old. you were there. When did you leave? Uh, what age were you when you left Cuba? I left in 1997 when I left. And, but I used to, I used to be, I used to work in movie theater. I, I don't know. I am a photographer. That's my major, but I didn't find a job for a year. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm also a photojournalist as well, but I, it was, it's very hard because I'm not into politics. So I didn't want to work in that area. And mm -hmm. I ended because I know everybody in the movie industry, in Cuba, the film industry in Cuba. Oh, so yeah. I, 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 I know I was coming to this country. I know I was leaving to the United States, but I need to work in between. So a friend of mine that used to work in a in the, you know, in the company that they do films in Cuba. I mean, do you want to be a projectionist? And I'm like, I would love to be a projectionist. I would love to work these old machines. And I used to work in a very small theater who has one of those, it looks like a Zeppelin. We felt you had to put some stick that looks like, how you call that? These two sticks. I'm talking about something. I don't even know what year that movie theater was built, but it was very ancient and it's two stick looks like incense and they, ha they have the fire when they touch together. And that's where the light comes off. Very, very interesting. And I used to put 
film from the 70s. I don't know. I mean, a lot of the movie Josh, Star Wars, stuff like that. It was very, mm -hmm. very interesting. But I, I rotate to different theaters. So I'm very familiar with Charlie Chaplin Theater. It's oh, my yeah. favorite. It's a big theater. It is. I think it's the best theater in Havana. That one and Jara, the one in 23 Street. That's the two big theaters right now. And they're still, they're still running as a theater and as a, you know, theater for play and theater to, to project films. And oh, the, the, the film festival in Havana is this month, I think the 18 or something, oh. they changed the day. So yeah, it was, a, it was amazing that, that you have your film showing there. It's a different experience, right? Because it's oh, yeah. people, in, people in there is, a, is very much into films. They love uh, movies and they do go and enjoy. That's something that I really well, like about. Well, that's true. True, and it's very—it's the the price to get in was pennies. I mean, it was nothing. Yeah. So anybody can go. Everybody can go. Yeah, and then the other thing is the audience is completely different from the audience here. For example, when we went to um, Boston, the lat you you and I met also. I there. that's right. I saw you in Boston as well. That's right. That's cine. What was what was the name of that Boston lat Latin American? I forget the uh, name. Boston Latino Film Festival. Latino Film Festival, Boston, yes. The audience, most people in all these audiences around North America don't know anything about Victor Hara, let alone new song uh, music. And so they don't even know the music. So if you grow up listening to the music, and Victor Hara especially, you grew up on the radio and you bought the albums and you or your brother or your sister or whoever you know it was part of your life mm -hmm. like in cuba the people who came to see it were my age you know and, or older and they and some were younger but they lived that music through their lives so for me that was wow i'm actually connecting with this is you could feel it whereas here it's the story of what happened you know there there's no connection through the music viscerally you know, the, like a, an emotional, you grow up like listening to your favorite band and you go to see a movie about that band 20, 30 years later, the music right away is nostalgic. Yeah, you and connect immediately. Yeah, exactly. So, Victor so, Harris has been in Cuba, so he's very oh, well known. Cuba, yeah. he was a hero, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. he was big. big. And so that was the great thing about the festival in Cuba was the audience, these were fans, uh, many people who knew his music, you know, and unless there's an exceptional person in the festival audience, you know, they're not likely to know anything about the music, never heard of song victors. Maybe they heard about him from a news headline or something, you know, but they don't really know the music or have lived the music at all. It's the why I wish. Well, we're going to go to, uh, we're going to go to, uh, there is a screening in Chile uh, again coming up that Asfaldo's organized. And I'm going to get some more details on that. And there's going to be a screening in, uh, in uh, Wales uh, and in uh, London uh, coming up. Uh, so a couple of festivals over there want to screen it. So we did one in Australia recently. And, Canberra, and that went off really well. There are there are sort of places that have interest in the fest in the film because they know the music and they know Victor's story, and they want to they want a larger audience to learn about it. 
And that's why I made the film. I wanted to educate people about the music and also about this, the politics behind the music as well, but also about the amazing story of Victor, the leader of the kind of the leader of the social movement, New Song. Yeah, I know no, the, the film is uh, definitely when you watch it, you if you don't know anything about it, you will learn. And if you know something, you will connect immediately. It's very well done. I mean, it's great. I want to ask you, John, what is you have any upcoming? project what's if you have you doing something new well i i mentioned this older yeah. film that i'm re i'm finally getting to cutting it i had ambitions about uh, ambitious uh plans to go back to a lot of the younger activists of that era from yale and the yale community uh who were anti-apartheid activists and i have reached out to them and say hey let's do interviews now and you can look at the footage and talk about you you know we i have them interviewed back then and they're you know only 20 years old 21 years old and now they're 50s and their 50s and they you know kind of like flashback i wanted to do that but that's i, I don't think that's going to happen i, I just want to cut the film what i have and, and get it out there as far as anything new goes Um, I had planned to make a film about my struggle at UVM, the matter, uh, the um, the university where I taught mm -hmm. for eight years, that led to my ouster. And uh, and what I and most people who observed what was going on considered to be a political uh, ouster, like railroading out. Uh, essentially, people who didn't like my politics or like what I was teaching booted me out. And so I took it to the Supreme Court of Vermont. I fought it all the way up to the Supreme Court, and I was I filmed. It. I had professional photographer, a filmmaker, a, a film uh, director of photography, and I have the whole thing in the can already done film. So I was going to cut that, but it's like wait. A minute i'm the story subject i'm the director how's that going to work you know that's a little tricky i'd have to get another filmmaker to make a film about me but then i'd still be the producer and eh, it didn't really work i i'd like to make it because it's incredibly dramatic in the mm -hmm. courtroom like a courtroom scene you know courtroom drama you can really make it powerful and there are some amazing moments in in the legal back and forth and it's about academic freedom it's about essentially the denial of academic freedom to a vulnerable teacher who is not tenured. And, it, and this is a very popular topic right now because so much of the university setting has moved, transformed from tenured protected teachers to these throwaway teachers. In other words, you're a person who, who's hired on a contract basis and it can be not renewed. And in one year, you're out of a job. If somebody doesn't like you, well, mm -hmm. yeah not going to renew your contract. So this transformation of higher education from tenure to non-tenured, which is now 75 to 80% of the teachers are non-tenured. I was a non-tenured teacher. I'm an example of how if somebody has a political ax to grind, you can easily be a victim of that. And mm -hmm. that's what the story would be. But how do I transform that into something larger than my story? You know, I'd have to probably incorporate other stories similar to mine, but it does, it starts to become sour grapes. Are you making the film because you want to, you know, you didn't win your legal case. So now you, because you can never win these legal cases are absolutely impossible. And so it looks pretty bad. So I'm not going to make it probably, but I intended, in, intended to make it. Other than that, I finding now that I'm back to writing books. So I, oh, got, that's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, I've got a book in production. I'm right under contract with a publisher out of England. So I'm working on a book about what I was teaching, a little bit about what happened to me, but that's just the springboard to reach the general audience and, and educate them as a journalist now, sharing 
the economics of my classroom, what I was teaching in, a, in, a, in an accessible way to the world. So you don't have to be an economist or an academic or anybody. You can read what I'm going to write and you get it right away. It's made for anybody. And so, so now maybe that could be put into a, to a film after the book comes out where I make it into a kind of a video journal of the book. I, I don't know. You know, there's a satirical level that we can bring into this and, and, and economics has become in many ways an outmoded, almost mm. irrelevant subject given the catastrophe of climate change. All of the fallout where loss of biodiversity and, and we can go down the list, go into an economics classroom and to teach the standard model only as if this is the way economics should be rendered is almost like I don't know, being teaching a theory about how the human body functions before modern anatomy developed a full, a full understanding of the functions of organs in our body, right? In other words, the idea of a, a subject which is pre-modern now being taught as the standard model, right? Pre-modern mm -hmm. in the sense is it's science, the evolution of understanding from a mathematical point of view, uh, you know, complex systems, climate change, and a lot of the, the, the issues there, you know, they can't be handled by the standard model. It doesn't even speak to it. In fact, it's aggravating the problem of climate change. And that's why I got thrown out of my class, because I was teaching the standard model and then telling students that if we take it to its logical conclusion, it's exactly this model that is aggravating, enabling the climate change that we're now all seeing in the headlines every day of the week, problems related to it. So that's what I was teaching in my classes. I was bringing that to the forefront, awakening the students waking them up saying, hey, hey, mm -hmm. hey, hold on a second here. This is a problem. There's some other ways we can approach it. Here they are. And of course, that offended a lot of people who has okay. special interests involved, invested in that standard model and some of its derivatives. And out I went. It, it was a change of politics, change of people in the department. One died, was an ally. One retired. They, they were gone. I had no protection. And out mm -hmm. I went because the younger ones had their own agenda and I was in the way and annoying them because the students would ask them what I was teaching and they didn't know. And it was it was that basically, you know, persona non grata. Well, I will, I will love that your film that you already have a lot of footage, you put it together. It would be fantastic to see it, it, it in the future because it's very interesting. Well, maybe a video journal. I, I, I was thinking maybe put in a monologue, first person narrative. I, I don't know how to, I've been working. Maybe you can give me some ideas too. I can give you some ideas to how yeah. to put I'd that together. To we can to, yeah. yeah, of course. You call me anytime. John, okay, yes. It's Thank been you. a pleasure to have you here and talk about the resurrection of Victor Hara one more time. It was the winner of New England International Film Awards as the best documentary. Anything else you want to share? I just want to say thank you for Aldrin uh, and your colleagues there for inviting me to submit the film. I really appreciate that you encouraged me to uh, submit the film to, to for consideration, a, award you have given the film. Uh, and I want to thank you for that on behalf of John Travers as the director of the film. Uh, and of course, myself uh, want to thank you. I wish you the best in your next year of uh, film. Screenings. Thank you. Thank you. We wish you the best as well. And it was a pleasure to have you in the festival, showing out your magnificent job and the restoration of Victor Harris stories that we love to show. And they're important, the people and the students, to see documentaries so important like this. And we hope to see you in our future, in our future film 
Film Festival. Maybe we, you come back. I hope so. We'll work on it. Thank you. Thank you, John. Okay. Thank you again.